You are listening to the Kensington Church Podcast, recorded live in Michigan. To learn more about Kensington, visit kensingtonchurch.org. What makes the news of Jesus so good? Why is it good? The news of Jesus isn't just called news, it's called gospel, which means good news. Why? What makes the gospel so good? Because we're in the second week of a series that we're calling Get Going. And the whole idea of this series is to spend several weeks looking at moments throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament particularly, where Jesus' followers are given this call and this charge to be people that move into the world with a concentrated effort and determination to share the good news with relationships around them, and we should be doing the same. But here's my question. If we're going to talk about how to do that, which is the next several weeks of the series, I think we need to talk for a minute today about what it is we even share. It's one thing to have this call to share the good news, but it's a whole other thing to understand what the good news even is that we're sharing and what in the world makes it so good. And is it more than just the fact that we can celebrate life after this life? No more fear in life or death. Sometimes what we do is we boil down the good news of Jesus to one thing, which is life after death. Then it's like, okay, great, what now? What do we do after we believe? Do we just sit back and wait until we can cash in that card in eternity? Like, what do we do now? Is there more than just life after death? Which, frankly, is a pretty good part of the good news. But when Jesus gave his first sermon ever, which we're going to look at today, Luke 4, if you want to beat me to the text, that's where we're going to be. In Luke 4, when he gave his first official message ever, it was an important moment where he started to peel back some of the mystery of what the gospel is and indicate that the gospel is very layered. And the more you understand the different layers of the good news, the different aspects of his gospel, the more and more we begin, I think, not just to appreciate it, but to fall in love with it. So I'm going to ask that he would speak through us this morning, to us, with us, and uh, we're going to jump in. Jesus. I do just come before you this morning very aware that again for a second time today, I'm going to speak on your behalf. And not just simply on your behalf, but I'm going to try to give a message that you gave. This is yours. This is your sermon. This is your message that you stood up in a church and you once delivered 2,000 years ago. Maybe the most important message ever. And so it's not lost on me that as a person who's continuing to try to live both the fall more in love with you and to understand you and to understand this text um, that I can't do it without you. And so I pray that you would just be my words, you would be my mind, you would be my thoughts. That for all of us today, God, we don't need to hear me, we need to hear you. We need to hear you in our ears, but we need to hear you in our hearts in the deepest places that only you can get to. So God, whether we're sitting in here or watching online, whether we're convinced you exist or whether we're not sure if you do, I pray that you would grab hold of the places within us that need you to, to say what we need to hear, to do what we need to have done, to give to us what we need to receive. And would you please help us as we walk out this morning to maybe understand something just a little bit more about the layers of your gospel and your good news than we understood when we walked in. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, when you walk off, would you do me a favor? I left my cup thing on my backpack. Can you grab that and bring that to me? Thank you. All right. Um, So a couple things this morning. First of all, really quickly, I shared this with First Service. Um, I don't know if it's being out of town recently or if it's a change in weather that's psyching out my body to think it's spring, but like allergies happening. So 
Uh, first service, I cracked a couple times like I'm going through puberty again, so it's going to be really awkward for me and really weird for you, but it's going to happen. We'll get through it together, so apologize ahead of time. That's what's happening. So for all of you afterwards that you're like, dang it, I shook that sick guy's hand. I don't think I'm sick. I think I just have allergies. Uh, on another note, thank you. That's it. Appreciate you. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you saw a minute ago on the screen, we had 7777. Those screens on the sides, that's for anybody that's got kids in the back. Those are where the numbers come up. If, like, your kid is like, I need my mom, I need my dad, that number comes up, and that's a request to you to come back there. 7777, when I first got here at Orient, I was like, what is 7777? Is that, like, there, some kid back there is just, like, super good? Like, the holy kid? It's, it's a number of perfect. Church jokes never work. Um, Anyways, what that is actually, it's a cry for help from any of our, our staff and volunteers that are sitting in the room because uh, the K-Kids is packed out, which has been happening increasingly lately, which is a good problem to have, but it does mean, i just kind of throw this out at you, if you have ever had any interest or curiosity in what it would be like to serve in our K-Kids, uh, this is a great season and we could totally use you. would love to have you go back before you leave today, talk to somebody at K-Kids check-in and just let them know, hey, if you need help, I would love to, to volunteer to help. So that's what that is. Again, great problem, but we're bursting at the seams, uh, starting to in this room and uh, outpacing ourselves even with our kids. So we'd love to have some help back there if you can, uh, you can do that. So um, this morning, before we go any further, we are going to take up our offering, which again, for those of you that have been part of Kensington for a while or for Orion, you know that this is an important part of what we do. This is a part of how we really believe God has called us to get done what he's called us to get done. Uh, it's in part through serving, it's a part through moving out into our neighborhoods and into our world, but it also happens in part in this way. And everything we bring in is dedicated to us using those resources to reach more people in real ways, tangible ways, loving ways, to say there is a God, his name is Jesus, he sees you, he's nuts about you. So to all of you that help us get that done, Thank you. To those of you that are not a part of this part of our journey, just love to have you join us. All the ways are on the screen. I'm not going to read them. You can read them. You can scan codes. Uh, there's also baskets that go by if you want to drop something in there. But thank you so much for all that you do. There is no way we could accomplish a fraction of what we do without the generosity of this place. So, all right. Got lots to do, so we're going to jump in very quickly, and we're going to go right to Jesus' first message and sermon. Luke chapter 4 is where we're going to start. I'm going to read a little bit, create a little context and explanation, read a little bit more, and then figure out what it means for all of us. Verse 14 of chapter 4 of the book of Luke. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in the synagogues, and everyone praised him. So he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. So he goes back home. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. Okay, so this is significant. A couple things just to understand to create maybe some context and layers even around the story. Uh, this will be the first time where Jesus is going to make clear indication of who he is and what he's come to do. And he's going to attach himself to an Old Testament prophecy about himself. Prior to this moment, though, he's not done that. He's piqued all kinds of interest to the people that have been watching him, but not necessarily because they think he's God. They're not sure who he is yet. But there have been enough things that have happened up to this point that there's murmuring, there's rumors, there's, I mean, there's a lot of talk beginning to spread around Jesus, kind of locally, and it's all making its way back home to where he was born and raised as well. 
I mean, there's some of the things that have happened up to this point when he walks into this particular hometown chapel and he's going to teach. Some of the things that have happened is his baptism. So his baptism, if you remember his baptism or can think of it, this is where he's put under the water by John the Baptist. And then you hear this audible voice for everybody that's there watching from heaven that says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Like, again, moment where people go, huh, they're leaning in, they're curious, uh, he, he's had up to this point the moment where he went into the temple where people were selling things using the temple grounds for profit. He kind of lost his, he's like, no, you're not gonna do this in my father's house. Overturns everybody's table. So like, again, there's things that are beginning to happen, creating a buzz. Uh, there's a high level leader in the community whose son was sick and dying. He healed him. Uh, you got the water that turned into wine moment. This was his first miracle, actually. That's already taken place. He's at a wedding. They run out of wine. Mom comes to him. He's like, oh, we're out of wine. Could you? He's like, Mom, it's not quite yet time, but it's Mom. So when Mom asks, you do what Mom asks. So he turns water into wine. So all of these things have happened. There's even been indication throughout the Gospels already that other things have happened without description. So there's enough taking place that there's an enormous buzz beginning to circle around Jesus. Not quite so much yet at his proclamation to be the Messiah, but because because of the things that he's doing. People are like, nobody's ever even been rumored to do these things. We gotta check this Jesus out. So you can imagine now when he comes back home that interest has peaked even more because people knew him. They knew him and he was a little kid running down the street, stubbing his toes and skinning his knees. They knew his family. They knew Joseph. They knew Mary. Like this is hometown boy, come back home. So when he moves in and he's essentially asked to give the Sunday morning message, which I understand was on Saturday, but when he's essentially asked, hey, can you give the message this weekend? Like people show up on the edge of their seats anticipating like, what is he gonna say? What is he gonna do? And so here's what he begins to say. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, and this would have been what he read to them out loud. The spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. So everybody's, you know, this is kind of the custom. You come in, you're the rabbi, you're the teacher, you take the scrolls, you read them, and then you go sit down and you interpret them. And so he goes and sits down and everybody, I mean, eyes are fastened. They're like, what is he going to say now? And then this is, this is kind of a bomb drop moment. And he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And here's why this is so important, why it's kind of a bomb drop moment. Because this is a prophecy that goes back 700 years that not only would the people have been familiar with, they would have been clinging to. Because this was a prophecy that was attached specifically to the promise that one day a Messiah would come. That one day there would be an answer to all of the problems, not just within Israel, but within humanity. And so this is a promise through the form of a prophecy that people have known about, they've heard taught about, they've anticipated, they've waited for, they've watched for, and Jesus just sits in front of them and says, today's that day. There's no more waiting now. The promise is about to be fulfilled. Now, you got back up a little bit, again, just to get some history of Israel and some of what makes this moment even more powerful than maybe we would fully understand just sitting here 2,000 years later. 
You go all the way back to the beginning of the story in Genesis chapter three. You've got the first couple of chapters of God creating and then God in relationship with his creation. And then in chapter three, we don't know how long this took, but somewhere in chapter three is the account of the fall of man. This is where the enemy of God, Satan, comes, whispers lies to Adam and Eve, deceives them into believing that God doesn't have their best, that they can actually be God themselves, God's holding out on them, puts the deadliest of questions in their mind. Did God really say, and as they begin to question God, they begin to pull back from God. As they begin to pull back from God, they do all the things that God said, hey, this is what I've asked you not to do, which was only one thing at that point. But in that moment, what they do is they break relationship with God, and they introduce not just into humanity, but into human beings, the reality of sin. And this is where everything then, from that moment till this moment, until the return of Jesus, begins to spiral out of control, under the effects and under the darkness of sin. So this is also where, in Genesis chapter 3, you have the promise, And God's promise is the form of a Messiah who would come, there would be an answer, there would be a solution. He looks at what's happened, he looks at how everything's broken apart, and he says, one day, I'm gonna resolve all of this. I will send somebody who will crush the head of that snake, though he will bite the heel of who I send, all indication of how Jesus would one day destroy the effect of sin, but the bite on the heel would be him up on the cross, taking the wounds before he resurrects from the grave. So this massive prophecy, we call it the Proto-evangelium, big word. I'm just getting credit for the fact that I went to college for it, so I gotta get my money's worth. But it's just the, it's the pronouncement that God says, I see the problem, I have a promise. And then if you go over to Genesis 12, he begins to tell you how the plan will bring forth the promise. So you've got promise, and then Genesis 12, you've got plan. So I actually want you to see Genesis 12, because it has a ton of bearing on today. And the Lord God said to Abram, go from your country, your people, in your father's household, to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. What peoples will be blessed through them? One more time. All people will be blessed through you. So God's already made a promise, but then he comes later on, generations later, to a man named Abram, who will become Abraham. This will be known as the Abrahamic Covenant. This is where God makes a promise to Abraham that through him he will spawn an entire nation of people that the promise will then come through. The plan, Abraham, is that I have a Messiah to come. The plan is he's going to come through you. Promise, plan, they're all beginning to come together in this moment. Here's the problem. As you begin to go throughout the history forward at this point of the nation of Israel, what you find is not maybe what they would have expected. Because in the moment, what he's getting from God is, you're a chosen person. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless people through you. So you would think, man, pack the bags, Martha. We're moving up. Like, things are going to be good. We're about to get a better neighborhood, a better house. Life is going to be easy sailing. We're the chosen people. But instead, you see the opposite. What happens for generations is outside nations begin to come in and pillage and overthrow and take captive and destroy and raid the land and rape the land. And they just, they devour Israel again and again. And then they get back up on their feet and then another nation and then on their feet and then another nation. And sometimes it's of their own effect because they wander away from God and all kinds of destruction comes in. And so suddenly this nation doesn't look like a nation that's going to be a great blessing let alone a nation experiencing great blessing because they're experiencing all this tyranny around them. 
And so what ends up happening in the minds of most of the Hebrew people is that this promise that was once given to be a blessing to how many people? All people becomes much more self-centered and focused. It ends up being a promise that they reinterpret mostly to believe to be a promise to them and for them. It's an anticipation ultimately that a leader will one day come to them and free them and help them and put them back on the top of the food chain. And it all becomes about what God's gonna do for them. And not even just necessarily for all of the Jewish people, but for some, the better ones, the select ones. And so the promise really gets boiled down to one day, here's what they believed from the promise originally given, God will send somebody who will help us no longer be poor, who will help us no longer be oppressed, and who will make sure that there is no longer any boot over top of us. And so when Jesus sits there in their midst and says, that promise is fulfilled today, what they hear is game on. All of the years, all of the suffering, all of the waiting, all of the oppression of our people, we're about to be liberated. And so they go nuts. Even though they don't necessarily know at this moment that he's going to assign to himself that he is God, he still speaks with an authority as a rabbi and as a teacher. And so with that authority, they're like, yes, finally, we've waited generations. What they're hearing is your day of redemption has finally come. And so they love the message. They're passionate. They're excited about him even. They're like, this is, little, this is like little Joe's boy. Like he grew up, he's doing all right. They, they're super impressed by him. And they're, I mean, there's just, there is a buzz in the room. The problem is that most of that buzz and most of that hype is because they've already predetermined in their minds what the Messiah is going to do when he comes and what the good news is that he's going to bring. But the truth is they're wrong, actually, because they have misinterpreted over time the fullness and the layers of what the good news is that the Messiah would bring and the work that he would do. And so Jesus goes on to start to correct them. Verse 22. All spoke very well of him, and they were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. And this Joseph's son, they asked. And Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. So here's what's interesting. Everybody's super excited. They're hyped up on what Jesus just said. It says here even that they were impressed with him. They were amazed with him. And instead of leaning into that, he goes, uh, you know what? I'm just going to forewarn you guys. There's going to come a point where you're going to tell me to put my money where my mouth is. You're going to tell me to prove it to you. You're going to tell me, go ahead, show us some of the miracles. Prove that you really are who you say you are, which is an odd thing to say. Because right now, the crowd is in his favor and he's starting to basically say, you're not going to always be in my favor. And, and then he goes a step further. This is kind of a famous moment. Some of us have probably even used this or quoted it. I just wonder if we have actually quoted it out of context. He goes on and he says this. Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. So for years and years growing up, whenever I heard that, I always thought that that was because Jesus was facing conflict. And in the moment of conflict, he's like, yeah, well, no prophet's accepted in his hometown because people didn't want to hear him or didn't want to listen to him. That's actually not what's happening. People are loving him right now. They're totally leaned in. They're completely amazed. So it seems like a really odd thing for him to go, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Again, 
All of this is because he's tipping hand to these people to say to them, you're you're not going to be very impressed with me in a moment because I'm going to shatter some of what you actually think I came to do. I'm going to add some layers to what you think this is actually all about. And so he tells two stories that are stories that they would have known, they would have been accounted for in the Old Testament and the book of Kings, and he tells them this. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut up for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. And yet, Elijah was not sent to any of them, but instead to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were also many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha. And the prophet was not sent to cleanse any of them, only to Naaman, the Syrian. And all these people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. So something just happened. Because they went from amazed to furious based on those two stories. It says here, And they drove him out of town, and they took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built, in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked away right through the crowd and went on his way. So massive change has just taken place. Like literally they just shifted in the matter of one service from you should be our pastor to let's kill that guy. As somebody that does this on a regular basis, I will just tell you I'm well aware of the fact that there's some Sundays it's like I walk out of here and I'm like probably not my best. You're, you're like, yeah, some Sundays weren't your best. But until the day that you all collaborate together to take me out back and murder me because you weren't happy with it, I'm just going to assume I'm doing okay. Like, this is like a huge moment. Like, what the heck just happened? Everybody's like, yeah, Jesus, would you stay, be our pastor? Then they're like, no, let's take him outside and throw him off a cliff. We hate this guy. Everything in that moment has to do with the layers he's adding, with the layers that, frankly, have always been there, but started to get covered up by personal expectation and personal desire and misunderstanding. See, if we're going to be people that share the gospel, then we have to know what the gospel is. And we have to know why it's so good. So I want to give you three things that I think are some of the layers in this text that Jesus begins to lay down. It's his first message. It's an important message. And right off the bat, I think he starts to lay down a couple of layers of the gospel that help us understand it's more than just life after death. And if we just reduce it to only life after death, we are missing so much of the layers of what the gospel is and the work that Jesus came to do. Layer number one, and I will tell you this is the foundation. You take this layer away, none of the rest of them even matter. Layer number one is the good news of God's debt forgiveness. The good news of God's debt forgiveness. I want you to go back to one of the verses we just read, verse 19. Of all the things he said he came to do, this is one of the ones he said, I have come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor would have also been a term that they would have understood and interchanged with another phrase, the year of jubilee. The year of jubilee would have been something, or the year of the Lord's favor, that all of the Jews would have fully understood. It was a custom that God had handed down to the people generations ago, that every 50 years there was a period of time in the nation where there would be a season of rest and reset. The rest would literally be for the land. So it would be a time where God would say on the 50th year, no planting, no harvesting. And this would serve for multiple things. It would literally give rest to the ground. It would give rest to the land. But it would also be a year where he would require his people to step into a deeper level of trust and dependence on him. Like, hey, I will provide for you. Do you believe that? Do you trust me? Okay, on the 50th year, no planting, no harvesting. I will provide. That's the rest. But then there was also a year of reset. 
Because at the same time, this is a year where debts were let go, where debts were given back, released. So if you had been indebted to somebody because maybe you, you got into a bad deal, you lost your property, your family had owned it, you gave it up and you had it no more, this was a year of jubilee where the debt was given away, it was taken away rather, your property was given back. If you were an indentured servant because you had worked up a debt somehow and so now you were an indentured servant to somebody, guess what happened in the year of jubilee? You were set free. There was no more debt. If you had financial debt, guess what happened? Set free. Like, could you guys imagine? I mean, I can't imagine the amount of debt just by the average American that we have just in this room watching online. Do you imagine if there was like a, a year where it's like all gone? Like, this is the year of Jubilee. So what's happening when Jesus says, the year of the Lord's favor has come, I'm here to announce it. What he is doing is he's not just speaking to the year of Jubilee, to financial debt. What he is saying is, I am introducing the year, the time in history, the act of heaven that will offer to all of humanity the possibility of a restart with God through the forgiveness of sins and that debt erased. All the way back to Genesis, what was introduced, what he's saying is that sin, that brokenness, this is the plan that has been all the way along and I'm offering forgiveness for that. If, if you go through the entire Bible from beginning to end, prophets, the disciples, Jesus himself, you cannot get away from the message that none of us that live now, will live, or have ever lived will escape the damning effects of sin. It explains everything wrong in this world, everything. Everything wrong in this world, everything wrong in our lives. Whether it's bad weather, whether it's sickness, disease, broken relationships, unkept promises, starving children, abused children, everything broken in this world. The lions not making it into the Super Bowl. Everything broken in this world is a result of sin, including our relationship with God. Most importantly, our relationship with God is affected by it because none of us are born into relationship with God. You, you didn't start drawing breath and your first words were, Jesus, like you just, I mean, maybe, <laughs> but not likely. Like, we're just not born into it. What we are born into is a fractured and broken relationship with God that needs to be tended to and amended somehow. And what Jesus is saying in this moment is so powerful. This is the gauntlet drop. This is where he says, the long-awaited promise through the plan of these people, today is the day that God is making available to eradicate your spiritual debt forever. The problem is that everything in our lives, this is where we even struggle with this, everything in our lives has a tendency to lie to us about what we deserve and what we've earned. Everything. Matter of fact, this is what I wanted my cup for that I forgot a minute ago. I was out of town recently and I was staying at a hotel, got up in the morning to have me some crappy hotel coffee and I grabbed this cup and on the front side of the cup it says, you've earned this. And then you flip it around to the back, and it says, you've earned this cup, and another, and another. And I remember sitting there, and first of all, it was awful coffee, so I'm like, well, I didn't earn much. But I sat there, and I'm looking at this thing, and I'm thinking, actually, I didn't earn this. I paid for it. There's a big dang difference. I paid for this coffee, and it's, it's garbage coffee. I'm going to go pay for better coffee. But... Everything in life attempts to deceive us that we have earned or deserve more than we do. Now, you look at every ad. You deserve this vacation. 
You've earned this relationship. You deserve this. You've earned that. You've, and we become these self-entitled people. And then that carries over to how we also relate to God. In one sense, we sometimes feel like we deserve whatever it is that God would say he offers, and so we don't really need God because we deserve it anyways. I don't need it from God. Or even in a religious sense, we feel like we can earn it. We can work hard enough. We can please him as long as the good outweighs the bad and all that. Then we can earn God's favor. It's why when we screw up, we think he's mad at us as if his love for us is based on our behavior towards him or for him. And so there's this warped way that gets into our minds of thinking that we actually earn and deserve a lot more in life than we do. And when that carries over into our understanding of spiritual realities, it can be lethal to us. Because here's the truth, and part of what the layer of good news is that Jesus is laying down right now is that I am offering you eternal debt forgiveness that you do not deserve and you cannot earn, but because of my lavish, immeasurable love for you, I'm going to offer it to you anyways. And when I do and when you receive it, I will wipe clear your spiritual debt forever and I will never, ever again hold it against you. Is that good news? Yeah, say it, that's good news. That's good news. I think part of the other layer that Jesus points out in this passage, put it on the screen, is what I'm gonna call the layer of the good news of now and not yet. The layer of now and not yet. One of the layers of the gospel, and I think Jesus, will see how he points it out in this passage, one of the layers of the good news that Jesus came to give to us is kind of a twofold. On one hand, it is the power, authority, and mission to move into this world with his kingdom values, his kingdom priorities, the way he treats people, the way he values people, and transform this world. Remember what Jesus once even prayed? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is where? In heaven. Part of his desire for us, his people, is that we would live out in this world in such a way that the values of heaven become the values of earth. The kingdom of heaven becomes experienced on the kingdom of earth. Like that is a charge given to us. That's not just, hey, I hope you guys experience really good days while you walk with me. No, he's saying, actually, I am laying my sword on your shoulders and anointing you to go into this world with power and authority and a sense of purpose and call to bring my kingdom here. Like, we have a charge to make this world better than we found it. Here's the other side of that coin. There's only so much we'll ever get done. I mean, how are we doing so far in human history? We, we kind of continue to make a mess of things. And there's some things we get better and we get good and, and then there's other things that we just completely implode. And so the other side of this, this is the now and the not yet, is that God's promise is that one day, even though we can't fully bring his kingdom to bear, he can and he will. And one day, the only rule, reign, and experience of all of creation will be God's kingdom, his values, his purposes, his way of life. And so that's the now and not yet. The now is we have the chance to bring the better way of the kingdom to this earth. The not yet is where we can't change things, God's promises it won't always be broken. One day I'll fix it, and one day I'll restore it. The problem is throughout the, ch- the history of the church is that we have this really bad habit of taking those two ideas and divorcing them from one another. And when we divorce them from each other, our tendency is to focus on one more than the other. And we've done this all through church history, and I would suggest we're even doing it again right now. 
And we, and we do it through two different terms, both of which should be married together, but when we divorce them, they become only a portion of what God is after in the good news of his gospel. Right now, I would say the divorce is between two areas or two categories, social justice and eternal justice. Social transformation and eternal transformation. Listen to me. Both of which are intended to be layers of the gospel's good news, but not when you divorce them apart from one another. In social justice, you might have people, and I hear people sometimes that will take terms and verses like Jesus saying, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And what we do with that is if you tend to raise this part of the good news up over the eternal justice and eternal transformation, then you say, well, that's our job. It's all about here. It's all about now. It's all about bringing the kingdom down to earth and transforming the earth. And so all the emphasis can dangerously get put into politics and programs and reform all to try and combat the things that should be combated and should be undone and one day fully will be undone, like oppression, lawlessness, pain and suffering, racism, uh, systems put in place to only serve those with power and already with resources and finances. But But it all becomes an effort on that. It's all very focused on here, now, what we can change today. And the idea is little by little by little by little, we're just gonna start transforming this planet into the kingdom and we're gonna bring it down and we're gonna make this place the kingdom of God. Again, how are we doing? Because there's only so much we're gonna get done there. Now, again, you go back to Jesus' words, he has some very specific things to say about the day of the Lord. He says, the spirit is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of the sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free. He is calling out some of the things that we need to do, we need to address. He's saying, listen, part of my arrival means this world, I'm going to bring a different way of operating. Because this is how the world operates, oppression, violence, no care for the sick, no care for the poor. He says, I'm, I'm introducing a way that's gonna be different. The problem is, is when we begin to assume that this should be the primary outworking of the gospel, what we start to do is think that the gospel's primary evidence of being effective and put in place is prison reform, is people not behind bars, is eradication of poverty, is people having better resources and ability to get medical care. Again, not things that God says ignore. Matter of fact, things he says, yes, be a part of these things. But if that becomes the litmus test as to whether or not the gospel is actually being impactful, that and that alone or that mostly, then you're forced to have to look around the world. And when you do, the poor, the oppressed, the naked, the hungry, the incarcerated, my own dad, and his blindness will speak more to the failure of the gospel than its potential. Even Jesus would. You know, Jesus was once criticized because a woman took an expensive jar of perfume, broke it open, and anointed his feet with it. And one of his disciples said, you shouldn't have let her do that. You should have sold that, taken the money, and fed the poor. And Jesus said to them, the poor you will always have with you. Now, this is not him saying, let's not care for the poor. Matter of fact, a huge part of Jesus' heart and his mission was to tell us, you better care for the poor. You better care for the marginalized. You better look after those who have less than you. But it was a moment where if he was trying to teach that his gospel imported into this world would eradicate on our watch and in our efforts poverty, this would have been the moment to say so, and he doesn't. 
Matter of fact, he says, you're always going to have the poor. Until I change that. There's another time, too, where Caesar, who was the overlord of Rome and the overlord, obviously, of the Hebrew people, uh, taking taxes. Nobody wanted to pay taxes. You don't like paying taxes. And so people are like, oh, Jesus, new leader, new kingdom. Should we pay him taxes? Remember what he said? Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what's God's. Here's what's interesting. How did Caesar get what Caesar had? He took it by force, by corrupt systems. He stole it. So when Jesus says, give to Caesar's what is Caesar, he's saying essentially, give to Caesar what he stole, what he took with power, what he took with corrupt systems. Again, does Jesus support all of that? No. That's why his kingdom's different. That's why he calls us to be different. That's why I believe he calls us to challenge systems that are corrupt. But if his intent was to help us to understand that the outworking of the gospel is primarily the eradication of broken systems or broken politics, this would have been the moment to say it. Don't give to Caesar what's Caesar's. He's corrupt. Take it back. Let's restart this thing. But he didn't. The only reason, the only reason that this world is broken the way that it is is because of our sinful, selfish hearts. Which means that sinful, selfish people and their politics and their programs and their reform will never fix everything, ever. You can change everything right now. If you could snap your fingers and eradicate poverty but not change the human heart, guess what happens in a year? Poverty's back. If you could snap your fingers right now and you could end oppression and racism, but you don't change the human heart, guess what happens a year from now? Probably less. It all starts to come back. The one thing that changes everything is when our hearts are consistently being transformed by Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit's power. Now, on the other side of that coin, there's also a danger in lifting up eternal justice over social justice and saying, no, this is it. These are the people that have a tendency to kind of bury their head in the sand throughout life. And they'll go through life and ignore the fact that we are actually called to be agents of change in this world, to challenge oppression, to challenge injustice, to create better ways of relating, to love with no regard. Like, there is just a reality that some of us bury our head in the sand, ignore all of that, and we do so with this mindset. Well, it's all going to get better one day anyway. And we're all going to go to heaven. God's going to recreate it. It's all going to be good one day. So it's okay. Or at least, what can I do to change anything? Well, on the other side of the coin of looking at the things Jesus says, he also says, hey, when you feed the hungry, give water to the thirsty, clothe the naked, it, it's as if you've done it as much for me as for them. You know, in 1 John, he even says, if you see your brother with a need and you do not help them, this is strong, he says, my love isn't even in you. God cares immensely about the brokenness of the world, the oppression of this world, the things that we have done wrong in how we treat each other and even in how we systematize that mistreatment. That's why even in the book of Amos, in the Old Testament, chapter five, you know what he once said? If you, if you go about ignoring the injustices around you, the oppression around you, but you gather together on Sunday morning and you sing your songs, but you close your heart and you close your efforts to deal with the brokenness around you, I hate your music. That's what he says. Like, God literally says, if you're singing songs to me, but you're ignoring the work of my kingdom in this world, I hate your music. So, so is the gospel layer here, is it social transformation or eternal transformation? 
The answer is yes. It's both. This layer of the gospel's good news is that Jesus says, I am giving you a better way of life. You guys have broken it. Look at what you have. I'm actually going to teach you a better way. And you have the power and the anointing to go into the world with this better way and begin to address where the kingdom of God is different than the kingdom of this world and introduce the world to my kingdom in ways. And where it remains broken, you can have hope that one day I'll come back and fix it. And I'll restore it. That's good news. Last one I'll give you is this. I think our band's in the wings ready to come out. It's the good news of every nation. The good news of every nation. One of the things that had happened with the Jewish people is that they had come to believe that everything about the Messiah would serve them, would benefit them, would be about them. And again, as I said earlier, not even just about all of them, but about select of them, some of them, few of them. And so when Jesus comes and he begins to teach, and particularly as he opens it up to these foreigners that he reminds them God's heart was for long ago, back in the Old Testament, what he's doing is saying the coming of the Messiah is actually not going to look exactly like you think it's going to look, and it's not going to be just for you, because it never has been. I mean, he tells the story of this foreign widow, and he specifically says at a time when women and children were dying because the land was being ravaged by a famine, I did not send the prophet to a Jewish widow. I sent the prophet to a foreign widow, a Phoenician woman, nonetheless, who would have been a part of the Canaanite community who were the enemies of Israel. I mean, this is a big moment where Jesus is like, hey, you remember when everybody's dying and they're sending the widows? Yeah, I, the prophet Elijah didn't go to any of them in Israel. He went to a foreigner. Oh, yeah, and you remember the one time, too, where the leprosy was breaking out? It was dying of leprosy. Yeah, I sent Elisha, not to anybody in Israel to heal them, but to a Syrian king named Naaman, to a foreign king. This, this is why they get furious with them. Because what should have been happening for the Jewish people up to this point is a couple of things based on the fact that they were the chosen people. Number one is a deep sense of humility that God had chosen them to carry the plan. But the other should have been a deep passion for the rest of the world to know the blessing that God was sending through them to everyone. But instead what happened is they became very self-centered, very self-focused, very arrogant, and very exclusive of all other nations. So when Jesus tells these two stories of a foreign widow and a foreign king who had leprosy and saying, God went to them, not just to Israel as he has done in the history, but as a matter of fact, not even to them at that point. What he is doing is he is destroying any sense or idea of, of, of this being about one people or one group or one kind of people. He's saying, listen, this is not gonna be some ethnocentric religion. This is not gonna be about just some people or one kind of person. This is going to be for the Jew and the Gentile. It's going to be for the broken and the put together. It's going to be for the healthy and for the sick. Y'all, this thing is about everybody. And that was a layer that had been lost over time and forgotten. That's good news. But what does all of it mean for us as we go into our week this week? You're going to have a couple hours right now. You're going to go home. You're going to watch a game. And you're going to forget most of this probably. And then tomorrow we're going to wake up and we're going to go to work. We're going to go to school, or we're going to go back to regular life, or you're going to be at home. And now, what, like, what, what does all this mean for us today? 
A couple of really quick things I would give you that this has to mean for us. Number one is I think you and I have to figure out how to live with more intentional sense of urgency. Listen, eternity really does hang in the balance. The gospel of Jesus is open to everyone, but it is not assigned. It has to be chosen and accepted. You don't wake up and you're just automatically at birth the beneficiary of Christ's death and resurrection. He offers it, but you've got to accept it. You've got to choose it. And eternity, because of that, genuinely, sincerely, literally hangs in the balance. There are far too many Christians that go through this life with the idea that the gospel is primarily about them. And how do I know? Because too many of us never think about anybody else. We never think about the person far from Jesus that doesn't know the love of Jesus. We become embarrassed or become scared or I don't know what to say, I don't know what to share. What if they think I'm weird? Who cares? There should be an urgency within us that if we believe this is true, there is one willing and ready to erase the eternal debt of all mankind. We just need to accept it. Why would we keep that message to ourselves? I hope we would live with a greater sense of urgency to bring that message everywhere, all the time, till our last very breath. Even as you leave today, maybe you've wondered what the the names on the walls are as you walk in. You're like, man, they're getting sloppier in here at Orient, all the graffiti. That's because we believe this place should never be more important than what it is. Brick and mortar, here to serve the kingdom. And so we've tried to figure out this last year, how do we make this place, how do we make it share the vision of what God's called us to do a little bit more? So the names on those walls, those are names of people that we love, we care about, we're praying for, that you love, you care about, you're praying for, that we wanna see come to know the love of Jesus. By putting them up there, it doesn't do anything magical, but here's what it does do. It allows all of us to begin to pray for the names together. When you walk through, see a name, pray for it on your way out. You don't need to know who they are. God knows who you're praying for. So maybe even today before you leave, throw a name, throw five names up on that wall. First names only, not last names. It gets weird if they come walking in one day. But put a name on that wall and let's let this building begin to speak more to the vision of what God's called us to do and be, which is ambassadors of the kingdom, bringing the good news and the message of Jesus to the world. Secondly, I think all this should for us as we move into our week this week, it should make us be people that live more in both action and hope. Again, some of us live more like, I can't wait till heaven because then it's gonna be better. And some of us are like, ah, forget about heaven, that's head in the clouds, let's make it better here, now and today. We need to be both. We need to be people that walk out of here and as Jesus followers go, some part of this world, I am not going to die without putting my effort toward making better. But at the same time, we should walk out of here and go, and whatever doesn't get fixed, I'm not losing hope. Because one day he'll come back and he'll fix it all. And lastly is this. We shut the doors to no one. And I think probably all of us would say, I agree. And yet the reality is, I would just bet that for most of us, there's somebody in your life right now that you need to repent of having shut your emotional door to because they frustrate you, they annoy you, they're the kind of person that maybe you hope either doesn't come to this church or doesn't stay at this church. Because you don't like them, you don't like what they do, it's uncomfortable, whatever the reason is. Or maybe there's even just people in your life, there's been people in mind, if I'm gonna be honest with you, that you've thought, you know what, I hope God doesn't forgive them. Anybody? A couple nervous laughs. I'm gonna take that as a yes, the silence and the nervous laugh. Yeah, there is just a tendency sometimes that we shut the door to some people. This message of God's hope was never just for the good. It was for the all. As if there is some good better than others. 
Listen, we're all the broken. This is a message for every single one of us. And maybe what some of us need to do is leave today and repent that there's been some hardness in our heart towards somebody or some kind of somebody that we have forgotten. The gospel is equally and every bit as much for them as it is for you and I. This is the gospel. And it's not meant for us just to receive it, but to extend it. Not just for us to receive Jesus, but to extend him. To share of his coming kingdom but our ability to bring that kingdom here and now in parts and pieces, to share of the possibility of forgiveness of our sins, to share of the hope we have that he promised us that if he goes away, he's gonna come back and he's gonna take us to be where he is and to share it with everyone. You've been listening to the Kensington Church Podcast. If you've enjoyed this recording, check back weekly for new content. You can find Kensington on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and of course, at kensingtonchurch.org.